We have been studying together over the last, oh, six or so messages over the last year, maybe a year and a half, uh, the goodness of God, that God is good in so very many ways. And if you look at your notes, you'll see a list of some of those things that we covered, that God is really good to everybody, everyone. He shares his common grace with all of the world. He shares his special grace with those who love him. But number one, we learned that God is good in his essential being. That is, in and of himself, God is intrinsically good. Moses asks in Exodus chapter 3 for a sight of the glory of God. And the response is, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And we certainly are thankful that God is great. But God could be great and not be good. And we would not be happy about that. God's greatness is garnished by his goodness. He's just good. God is always good all of the time. We learned that God is good in creation, that he looked around and he saw everything that he had created, and behold, it was good. It was very good. There was a time when the maxim life is good was actually true. It wasn't always that way. It's not always going to change, but it is that way now. We learned, number three, that God is good to rebels in Genesis chapter 3, we read this. The Lord God came to the man and woman and said, What is this that you have done? What have you done? And in the goodness of the living God, his response was, I will crush the serpent's head. That was good. Fourthly, we learned that God was good in redemption. But when the outrageous goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Titus chapter 3, he saved us. How good is that? And then fifthly, we learned that God displays his infinite goodness in the sending of Jesus, his son, the gift, the gift of eternal life. Hebrews chapter one, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature and God gave him to us. And then six, we learned that God displayed his goodness on the cross. We learned that from Psalm 22. We read these words, he has done it. He has accomplished it. It is finished. In other words, someone was willing to fight for you, willing to fight for me, and it was God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, we want to look at the seventh and final one of these acts of goodness on the part of God, and it is this, that God is good when he gives us eternal joy. And we're talking about everlasting joy, the deepest, most satisfying kind of joy that anyone can ever experience Jesus tells us in Revelation 21, behold, I am making everything new. In other words, somebody wants you, and they want you forever, and they want you to be full of joy forever, and that's good news on Christmas morning. So we thank God for all of these ways that he shows his goodness, and we're looking at this last one in Revelation chapter 21. Well, you may remember your best Christmas ever. I do. It was 1964, I believe, a very long time ago. It was a great Christmas. It was the year I got my Lionel train. Yes, indeed. A Lionel train. I sure did love that Lionel train. I ran that Lionel train all day long. It was great fun. I used to talk about that Lionel train, and I still am all these years later. It became a good friend to me. I still have my Lionel train. It hasn't run for a long time, but I've got it. It's there. You remember those vintage commercials about Lionel trains? 
They had a picture of a Lionel train there in the very foreground, but then in the background, there was this great big face. It was a kid's face. So I remember it was kind of an ugly face, but it was a happy face because this kid had had the best Christmas of his life. He had gotten a Lionel train. Now, strangely, my mom and dad did not love my Lionel train, something that I found very difficult to comprehend. It just wasn't a big deal to them. They didn't dislike it. They weren't against it. It was just a thing to them. You know what they loved? They loved the expression on my face. They loved the fact that I loved that Lionel train. They loved seeing my enjoyment of that Lionel train. That train would go round and round and round and round and round because that's all I had was a circle. Round and round and round. But they weren't looking at the train. They were looking at my expression. And my joy brought them great joy. We get that. Because that's what Christmas is all about. I mean, you get to a point in life where you've got pretty much everything you need and a whole lot of the things that you want. And so Christmas morning for you is not about getting more things. It's about enjoying the response of people who get things that they really enjoy. Someone else's face brings us great joy. Well, what makes us think that, that God is not that way? That God wouldn't find great joy in bringing great joy to his people. Now, we know from Scripture that God's not begrudging. God's not stingy. He's not cheap. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. We know that God takes great delight in blessing everyone in the whole wide world. Not just Christians, but everybody experiences the goodness of God. And we know that God finds a peculiar a particular joy when it comes to delighting his own. We're just talking about the fact that God is giving us a glimpse in Revelation 21 of this great joy that he experiences as he makes sure that we experience great joy together. We're looking at three glimpses, and I need some water. Would you grab my water and bring it up, please? Thank you very much. You realize as soon as you get your water, you don't need it anymore? (laughs) Plus, you'd get to drink it in front of everybody. Thank you. We're looking at three glimpses into the goodness of God in eternity, which really revolves all around joy. And the first glimpse that we have shows the extent of God's love. It's his goodness that's on display in the newness of everything that everything is new. Twice, John says, I saw. It's a report. It's an eyewitness account. And he's describing the extent of God's goodness in preparation for all of eternity. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the new, a first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John is just stating some things that he saw. He saw something that was massive. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's a whole new universe recreated by the living God. It was massive. It was something that was incredibly glorious, the new Jerusalem, something that was unlike any other city that has ever existed or will ever exist in the history of mankind. He saw something massive. He also saw something new. 
And three times he emphasizes that word new, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, as if new was really important. And new is important because it's a significant word that means something. It does mean new in the sense that sequentially or chronologically it is new, but it's much deeper than that. It's deeper in the sense that that is something different new. It's something unusual new. It's something that nobody has ever seen before in the history of mankind, something very, very new. So it's massive what he sees. It's new what he sees. And thirdly, it's real. The old is gone. The new has come. This is a glimpse into the goodness of God. Well, in verse 1, the apostle describes two spectacular newnesses, newnesses, things that are new. They're so new that we've never seen anything like it, and we never will see anything like it again. The first newness is the new heaven and the new earth, that it will be recreated. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We sing about it. We sing about it every Christmas time. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. So we get it. This earth needs some help. It's time for something new to arrive. It needs to be created, and it needs to be created, recreated for a reason. And the reason is for all of these generations, people have experienced the curse that was brought on because of our own rebellion in the Garden of Eden. All creation, according to Romans 8, has been groaning, and so it needs to be recreated. But there's something else that needs to take place, and it is the fact that the children of God are going to be revealed one day, and that's what takes place also in Revelation 21. We get some helpful detail from that if we go back and look at 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter begins to describe the same event. He says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away like a roar. Imagine that when everything, the earth and the heavens are, are just taken away so that they can be created with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and here's a word and dissolved. So something's going to happen that's new, and it's something that's spectacular. But he goes on, Peter, to describe the reason that it's necessary. He says, so that the works that are done on it will be exposed. Because apparently sin and death and hell have infected the universe in a way that we can barely imagine. Something new needs to take place. I suppose that we really have no comprehension of how distorted everything is because of sin and because of the curse. We just know that everything's groaning and we just know that hell and death and sin and bitterness were never supposed to be part of this, but they are. Well, Peter goes on then with the prediction, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Again, that same word, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And then finally, Peter reminds us of this wonderful, unchangeable promise of God. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here in Revelation 21, there's the summary that God is giving to us. Good news from God, right? New heaven, new earth, it's on the way, and it is new, and it is remarkably new, and it is not anything like the old, and in that we rejoice. 
We don't get a lot of information about how God's going to, about, uh, going to go about doing that newness. We just know that primarily it's a place of righteousness. And it's going to be new, but it's going to be a righteous new. When you hear about the, the place that we're going to inhabit for eternity, there are two things that always come up. One is, is that it's holy, and the other is that it's really good. The people of God are blessed, good, but they're also holy, righteous. And both of those things need to be uh, true of this place. So we find uh, in verse 1 something that at first looks like a head-scratcher. It seems out of place, but of course it isn't out of place. It has to be something to do that revolves around this newness. And what we read is this comment, and the sea was no more. It just kind of doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, what's it have to do with the new heaven and the earth? And oh, by the way, the sea is no more. Well, it's one of seven things in the passage that is no more, that's not part of heaven. One is no more death, no more mourning, no more weeping, no more pain, no more curse, no more night, no more sea. It seems odd. Sea has to be connected somehow to all of these other bad things that aren't supposed to be there. So it's possible, there's some options, it is possible that physically there's not going to be any sea, no more oceans. In other words, Hawaii isn't very happy anymore, Tahiti's not happy anymore, they're just out in the middle of nothingness, maybe, not really, because it's going to be heaven, but maybe it's physical, maybe it's emblematic, in the sense that right now the sea serves this function of purifying what we as human beings do on this earth, but in heaven we're not going to pour sewerage into the sea, and there isn't going to be any plastic in heaven unless they need it to make Lionel trains, so maybe it's emblematic. It could be figurative, because in chapter 13 we read that John saw a beast, and that beast came up out of the sea. Speaking of the mass of unredeemed humanity, I kind of think it's probably the third one. You can figure it out if you think differently. But what we do know is that creation is totally renewed. Everything is speaking of this brand new environment that's exactly what it ought to be. None of the old tainted stuff is going to be here. Everything's new. A new heaven, a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no sea anymore. No bad things remain. Nothing at all. It's all new. And so the first evidence that we see, or the first glimpse of the goodness of God in eternity is this newness. Newness says, 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 says. And we could go on forever letting that word re resonate and reverb because something different is going to happen. A new heaven and a new earth is recreated. But in addition to that, John sees something else that's new, and it's the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, which is, in a word, resplendent, that there's nothing like it on the planet. There will be nothing on earth like the new Jerusalem. Verse 2, I saw a new holy, uh, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so in a phrase, the new Jerusalem really is the center and the focus of the whole universe, that there's nothing quite like it, and God wants us to know that. When I was a senior in high school, we took our senior trip to New York City. It was so exciting. We didn't get to go to Rome. We didn't get to go to any of those wonderful places. I know people who've gone all over for senior trips. They last a week sometimes. We got to go to New York 
city. It was all right. We got up really early in the morning, got the bus, spent the day there, went to shopping, went looking at some of the sites, went to Radio City Music Hall and watched Scrooge, a movie, for our senior trip. I'm just saying something's wrong. But at any rate, I remember we got up really early in the morning. We got on the bus. We traveled. It was dark. When we arrived near New York City, you could look out the windows and you could see all the lights of the city. And you've seen pictures and maybe you've been there. And it was a glorious thing. I just was kind of amazed at it. But then you got down into the city and all of a sudden everything was different. The roads were torn up. There was construction every place. There was garbage floating around the streets, and there were some pretty rude people in New York City. I'm just saying, I've been to New York City, and it's not the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is totally different, totally magnificent, and throughout the whole Bible, we're being prepared because you and I are going to live there one day. It'll be a glorious place. Throughout the Bible, the New Jerusalem is not only a promissory note, it's also an ancient hope and a great anticipation. Maybe it's referenced in Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises about you. And then it talks about this Jerusalem. Maybe it's referring to that. Maybe it harkens back to the millennial city that's predicted in Zechariah chapter 8. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts and the holy mountain. Maybe it's referring to that. It certainly is anticipated in Hebrews chapter 12, where we read, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Those are bad things. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, into the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So we know that it's a magnificent place, and we know that you and I are going to be there in this city. According to Hebrews 12, the city already exists. It's already there. You have come, present tense. Not something that's going to happen, but you've already come there. According to Revelation 21, this city descends from heaven. It also is adorned and glorious and it is the wonderful home of the saints of God, you and I. That's a good thing. God is interested in our well-being. It's the residence of every believer and of all the redeemed from all of the ages. And you and I get to live in this city. Now, maybe you watch some of those home renovation shows. You know what they're like. You have this couple and they're, they're introduced and they take you into their trophy home which cost about $20 million, and they want it to be upgraded. And they've only got $400,000 to put into the upgrade. And so you get to watch how this house is slowly transformed into an even more glorious house. I know that's true because I watch it while I'm laying in the dentist chair. I'm there with my eye open. The TV is on the roof, and I'm watching this thing. And I'm thinking to myself, that is really a nice house. But I don't like those people at all. They just kind of seem self-important and self-preoccupied. They're not my kind of people. Well, that's the way it works, right? When we look at a beautiful house, 
We're, we're especially the house if the bride is living in it. We, we look at the two by four, we look at the drywall, and we, we don't say, well, that's some nice drywall you've got hanging in your kitchen. What we really say is, wow, the bride is living in this house, and she's magnificent. And that's what John is trying to portray. That it's not the city itself that's so magnificent, it is the bride of Christ who lives in the city. We're just describing the glory of the goodness of God as we look into eternity future. We do know this, it's unlike any other city. We know that it never will be paralleled or never will be surpassed in any way. It is a city that is beyond the telling. Likely, it's the, I, I read this list this week, I'm like, whoa, it's the political, physical, social, and spiritual center of the universe, the new Jerusalem, the focus of everlasting life. It is the home of the redeemed, the home of the bride. The redeemed are the glory of this new Jerusalem. And it is as if the bride is arriving in the limousine. She is descending. The Lord is not ashamed of this bride. The Lord's not embarrassed with this bride. The bride is betrothed, of course, the purchase price of the cross. She is presented the new Jerusalem and she is forever cherished. We're talking about someone more than something when we talk about the new Jerusalem. In other words, I go to prepare a place for you. And I think the emphasis was on the word you. I go to prepare, we put it on the place. Well, I've got a mansion just over the hill. No, the place is important, but the person is more important. Three glimpses into the joy of eternity. Number one, God's goodness in the newness of everything. Everything is new. Number two, it's on display in his new residence. We've got the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's kind of the foundation. And then we move into the second part, which is God's goodness in eternity on display in the place that he resides in his dwelling place. Verse three, I heard a loud voice from heaven, the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, I suppose that you and I cannot even begin to comprehend or to appreciate heaven in any substantial way apart from the loving kindness of God. I have to admit the thought of streets of gold, pretty cool, and uh, crystal fountain, pretty cool, all of those things that will part pearly gates, pretty cool, all of that. But I also kind of ask myself, how long does it last? I mean, we've been walking on the streets of gold now for about four days. <laughs> Seen that, done that. I saw the pearly gates. They're cool, but, you know, been there, done that. Because the place itself is not the glory of heaven. It's part of the glory of heaven. But apart from the loving kindness of God, Heaven would just get old after about six eternities of being there. There's something glorious about this place. And what's glorious about this place is that it is the dwelling place of God with you and with me. I long for the place. I do. I long for the new body and all the stuff that goes with it. But what I really want to hear is this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Not the place, but the thing itself, the, the, the God, God himself, the joy of the living God as we enter into this wonderful place. I do long for that glad embrace. I do. I do wait for that. 
more than streets of gold, more than pearly gates. Here in Revelation 21, we discover happily that we're not the only ones who feel that way. Apparently, God feels that way because he's going to already be in heaven, right? He already has heaven. He owns heaven. He's been there. So he doesn't need any of that business. What is it that God anticipates in glory? Us. Talk about joy. That goes beyond the telling. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. A number of years ago, we were at the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon is a cool place to go. It really is. And very few places on earth like it. Niagara Falls, maybe. And some of you may have been some other places where, oh, it's really awesome. But I can tell you the Grand Canyon is pretty good. But I noticed when I was there that I really would not have wanted to be there alone. You know, maybe you do. But I don't want to be there alone because I want to share it with somebody. I want somebody else to be there with me. And one of my great memories of the Grand Canyon wasn't even, I mean, when you walk out, the first thing you see, you're just kind of amazed at it. But that's not what it was. It was the look on Mikey's eyes when he saw the Grand Canyon. I mean, they were like softballs when he saw it. And I could just tell that he was full of delight over it. That meant more to me than the Grand Canyon itself. Oh, what makes us think that God is any different? God wants us to have that same enthusiasm over glory. He already has heaven. He's already there. He owns it. No doubt it's a cool place to the living God. But he wants to share it with somebody. And astonishingly, that someone is you and me. According to Revelation, God wants us to be with him. Verse 1 tells us that God's recreating everything, heaven and the earth. Verse 2 tells us that he wants to share it with us, the holy city, his dwelling place. We're not going to be spectators there. We're not going to be visitors like as if we go to Disney World. We're going to belong there. We will dwell there. Well, everywhere the Bible uh, invites us to draw near to God, uh, there's a problem with that. The problem with that desire to be with God includes a little bit of trauma. We'll mention that this morning, but let's begin with the invitation. Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 10, let us draw near to God with a heart heart in full assurance of faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, Christ died for the sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. Psalm 16, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 65, how blessed is the one you choose to bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied in the goodness of your house and in your holy temple. There's so many passages that talk about the the longing of God on our behalf to draw us towards him. It's so important that Isaiah twice mentions it. He mentions it first in Isaiah 35, so desirable is this dwelling place with God. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy will be on their heads. And then he goes ahead and he repeats it in Psalm 51. Everywhere the Bible invites us to draw near to God, he promises joy. But that does include some complications too, in particular. We just mentioned them This morning, and those complications are our creatureliness, and secondly, our guilt. Well, R.C. Sproul has written a book called The the Holiness of God. And if you read it, 
you understand that it's one of those things that reacts in our hearts like it did with Isaiah in chapter 6. He speaks of the trauma of holiness, and he says this, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. That's the normal response to the being, to dwelling with God. The normal response. He's saying that regardless of how pure in heart we are, we're conscious, or we should be, of the fact that as a human being draws near to the living God, there is one inevitable result, and it's called trauma. Trauma to the 10th degree. So there's part of us that really wants the uh, pearly gates and the streets of gold, but it's not so sure that we want God in the living room. It's kind of like having your father-in-law in the living room. Not very comfortable with that particular situation. It was true for Isaiah. Woe was me. It was true for Daniel. A man dearly loved by God, he fell on his face as though dead. It's true for righteous Job, my eyes have seen you and I despise myself. I abhor myself. I repent. No one can uh, escape this upheaval of soul. So we need to consider these two obstacles as we think about them. Number one, the tension of the holiness. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. We've already described that, the creatureliness, and it's already been resolved. The dwelling of God is with men. Everything's new. We can be there. The second obstacle is guilt, which comes from the Garden of Eden. And what was the guilt all about? They heard God in the cool of the evening. And what did they do? They hid. Well, that's our nature, to be creaturely and to be guilty. But God's already taken taken care of that as well. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. And so when we talk about dwelling with God, we are saying it is a very good thing because God's already taken care of these two issues. And it really revolves around this little issue. What does dwelling mean? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. Well, I remember when my daughter Angie was born way back in 1979, it was in January, and it was quite an experience, our first child, and we didn't really know what to expect. I don't think anybody probably does, but I do remember that when she was born, man alive, I sure was taken with that little girl. There's just something about being with her. I just really enjoyed it, really wanted to be with her. She was born in January, and I, I remember that uh, I took her down to the I don't know, whatever the room was in the hospital where the TV was, they won't let you do that anymore. But we went down there, and it was Super Bowl weekend. And there was a Super Bowl on. Day one, she was a little baby girl, one day old, and we're watching the Super Bowl together, daddy and daughter. I mean, how cool is that? Even better. Pittsburgh Steelers were playing the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) I'll stop right there. It was a delightful time that we had together. It wasn't a burden to me at all. (laughs) It wasn't like, oh, bummer, i got to hang out with this little baby girl. I loved doing it. I loved doing it. And I remember at the time thinking about this. I cannot believe how much I love this little creature. And I also thought, I can't believe that maybe God loves me that way too. That God has that same inclination towards me. And so the, for, the, for the very first time, I kind of had a, a glimpse of God's deep, infinite love for me. So as I thought about it, I'm like, you know, this little girl, she doesn't have to do anything at all for me to love on her. 
you know, she, I hope, you know, I hope she doesn't act up, you know, please don't throw up on daddy again, right? <laughs> Wasn't that. There was nothing that she could do that would enhance that dwelling that we had together. And that's the way it is with you and I and God. There's nothing we can do. God delights in us simply because we are his children. And dwelling simply means that we're comfortable with that, right? That God's comfortable with us, that we are comfortable with him because having God really is better than having heaven. Having God is heaven. Now the dwelling of God is with men. Think about the human delight that we have in each other. It's really hard for us to admit that God's loving kindness surpasses ours, but I think it probably does. God's love is all-surpassing. And we know the definition of love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the one being loved is deserving. And God does this with an everlasting perfection. He loves us deeply. It's what the Bible means when it says dwelling place. Not a difficult thing. It's not an uncomfortable thing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Well, if you need to challenge some of those awful thoughts that you have about God, and I do, that God maybe really doesn't want to be with me. He'd rather be with my daughter than me. All right. If, if you have to wrestle through those things, there are three things you can do. Preach to yourself, like we're doing today. Number two, repent. Because it is an awful thing that we think of God in such an unworthy way. So we need to repent. And then finally, just dare to believe it's true. I put a, a quotation in there by Stephen Charnock. I was going to talk about it today. We don't have time. I'll just say this. Just, just think about what he is saying in that little quote in your notes that God gave us. He could have just given us natural, wonderful experiences in heaven. He decided to give us himself instead. Infinitely greater infinitely more magnificent. So the first glimpse is God's goodness in eternity. Everything's new, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Secondly, his goodness in eternity on display in his new residence that he's going to be with us and it's going to be a good deal. We are never going to want to leave the presence of the Lord ever. And then finally, God's goodness in eternity is on display in the new, in our new and eternal joy. He says in verse four, he will, wake, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and to that all of us say, Amen. But then he goes on, and he says, He who was seated on the throne said, and this is the second, Behold, behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, I write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If you look at the little overview in your notes, I just have this little chaotic uh, expression of what we are finding in our verses. It really does fold back on itself, the passage. Starts with verse 1 and 2, and then, then here in, in verses 4 and 5 in particular, it folds back. It's like it goes back to reinforce what was said in the beginning and what he's saying is that it really is all about eternal joy, all this newness. It really is. It has to be. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. has to be because anything less than that's not worthy of God. Stephen Charnock brought that out. It's new, unlike anything old, totally new, transcendently new. 
And then he finishes by saying, guess what? Everything's new, including our relationship to the living God. Even that's new. And that's what I look forward to more than anything else in, in eternity. I just really want to be at home with God. And so do you. Now, verse 4 seems almost incidental. I just mentioned it. But it really does reflect back to the no longer any sea, right? No longer any sea, no longer death or mourning or any of those other things. Everything that would rob us of joy and eternity, God's just going to take care of those for us, taking all of those things. And then in contrast, we have all of these things that would cause the very heart of God himself to sing for joy. Verse 5, I am making everything new. John Piper tells us that there are at least four things that are new, spiritually and morally new. Wretched man that I am, Romans chapter 7, I'm going to be glad when that's new. Spirit, physically and bodily new, Philippians chapter 3, who will transform our lowly bodies. And I'm beginning to understand what a lowly body feels like. And so are you. That's going to be new. A new creation. Romans chapter 8. The whole creation has been groaning. It's going to stop groaning. Who can imagine what creation could have and should have been apart from the curse and apart from sin? But the big one is a new relationship with God. And it's described in Revelation 22. They will see his face. Utter joy. Now, you don't look someone in the face unless things are okay between the two of you. And that's the way it will be with God. No hiding, no misgivings, no guilt, no separation, no fear, all of it. It's all going to be new, especially our relationship with the living God. It is more than a song, by the way, that we sing. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let every heart receive him. It is more than a song. It's actually something true and so real that in verse 5 and 6, three times God has something really significant to say about it. The first is that I'm making everything new, everything. The second is write it down, write it down, because these words are trustworthy and true. And then in verse 6, he says, it's done. In other words, it's already happened in God's economy. He's going to do it. And so it's sealed at the end with his sovereign authority, the Alpha and the Omega. So Revelation 21 is just saying John saw something, new heaven and a new earth, and then he saw the new Jerusalem adorned like a bride. And then he heard an angel say, behold, now finally the dwelling of God is with men. And then he heard God himself saying, behold, I'm making everything new. Write it down. It's already happened. Having heaven is not quite as good as having God. Having God is better than having heaven itself. It kind of sounds like Christmas morning, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like, hey, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Great joy. First glimpse, newness of it all. Second glimpse, God's new dwelling with us. Third glimpse, new and eternal joy. I kind of would like to have some everlasting joy. And that's what God has promised us. Because God's goodness is going to continue to be a marvel right on in through eternity. We're never going to get a, a weary or tired of God's goodness towards us. Well, tomorrow morning is Christmas morning. I think most of you know that. But mom and dad, I'm sorry to say that 
If you have not already purchased a Lionel train for someone in your family, that you probably forfeited your Christmas joy for this year. And you've probably forfeited the Christmas joy of your loved one, too. So maybe next year you ought to take some time and think about Christmas. I mean, your child, right? Or your grandchild. Or your husband. He may need a Lionel train. Or maybe your father who loves you and spent that first Super Bowl with you. Angie. Lionel trains. Sorry, next year, work on it. But there is good news, right? All is not lost. It's not too late for us to deepen our joy in the goodness of God for eternity. We read about it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Good news of great joy. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Good news of great joy. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 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 pay attention to this. This really does matter. The dwelling place of God is with man. Good news of great joy. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Good news of great joy. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making everything new. Everything new. Write it down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. Let's bow, shall we, as we pray. Lord Jesus, we bow to praise you and thank you for the great wonder of your love for us and for your goodness towards us that will last throughout all of eternity. We admit that we have not seen you in the past, but we do love you. And we don't even see you now, but we do believe in you. And we would pray that on this Christmas season, during this Christmas season, you would fill us top to bottom with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And we ask that you would do it, for we pray it in your precious name.